This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you as we wind down what's been a big week for us and appreciate you being here with us. We'll have more time for your phone calls coming up. we got some other stuff to get to uh, later in the hour, uh, including a conversation with uh, music uh, author, journalist, historian Alan Cross. We'll talk about the uh, tragic passing this week of legendary guitarist Jeff Beck. We'll talk about that coming up after 2.30. But speaking of legends, what more can you say about our next guest? Alberta's own, by the way, born in Edmonton, grew up in Calgary, and went on to some pretty great heights. Pardon the pun? Part of the uh, legendary comedy duo Cheech and Chong. Uh, started numerous films, was, of course, a part of uh, the hit TV show That 70s Show. Will be, we understand, a part of the reboot That 90s Show. Uh, comes out uh, later this month. A lot of other things going on, still going strong at, I think, what, 84 years of age, including Cheech and Chong Cannabis, CheechandChongCannabis.com. You knew that was going to be reality as we got into the uh, era of legalization. Let's get right to it. The one and only Tommy Chong joins us uh, on the line here this afternoon. Tommy, how you doing? Welcome to the program. I couldn't be better. I'm doing really well, you know, considering good. everything. <laughs> I suppose so. Uh, we mentioned Cheech and Chong's Cannabis, uh, Cheech and Chong's Cannabis.com. I mean, it, it's a whole new era. All these years, right, of, you know, fighting for change, legalization, reform. We've kind of got it, not totally in the U.S., but how different are things now? Uh, well, yeah, you know, it's actually, uh, the, nothing's really changed. Yeah. Uh, except uh, they don't uh, get down on you as hard as they used to, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Like, like you, you don't get shot uh, now. Now, well, actually, going through the border, if you got pot in your in your suitcase, now they don't care about that. But don't have a pair of scissors or, yeah, or a exactly. pocket knife, you know. So, so it's it's changed, and uh, I, I'm enjoying it. I, I'm actually reaping the benefits. Yeah, well, and, and you should. I mean, you know, you you know, you had some fun with it over the years, but I mean, you, you did time in prison. I mean, you know, so there was a, there was that side of it too for you. I sure did, but uh, everything is an experience. You know, that's what life is an experience, and and we're not supposed to go through life uh, perfect. You know, uh, no one that ever has, even though perfect ones, they get executed before they can do too much uh, good. You know, so so I, uh, I I I I just been blessed, and and I was blessed early uh, with a, with a um, an upbringing, you know that that kind of you know uh, made it easier mm-hmm. for me because I went through all the hardships in the beginning, and and now uh, my my biggest problem is learning how to relax and enjoy. Yeah, no kidding. And and you're still busy. I mean, you know, it's mentioned, uh, you know, 84 years of age, uh, 85 coming up soon here. And <laughs> so you're, you're still busy. You're still going strong. That's great to see. Yeah. Well, you know, I found out through DNA, I got 8% native in me. Right. And I think I think that's the part that's keeping me uh, from aging. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I've got quite a, quite, quite a mixture uh, Chinese, uh, Scotch, Irish, uh, Native, uh, Amer- uh, Canadian uh, Native. Uh, so uh, you know, and then then I married my first wife. Uh, Maxine was black from uh, you know descendants from from the slaves from Texas, mm-hmm. and I got two beautiful children uh, from Maxine. You know, Radon and then Robbie. Uh, and, you know, both incredibly successful you know in the movie business and the modeling business and you know my life has been so blessed that uh, that my my job really is to uh, show people how how uh, how an old guy from Calgary can uh, <laughs> climb to the top and uh, and still stay there and without losing anything 
you mentioned your daughter, uh, one of your daughters anyway. I know she's been working on a documentary, a Cheech and Chong documentary, and, and clearly you've yeah. been, been involved in that. Where is that? Is that is that close to being done? It's done. It's oh, is it? Done. It's in the can. They're just looking for the right deal now, you know. They got, it's on the, on the, the, the trading block now, you know, to see uh, which, uh, how they're going to release it. Uh, but it's it's yeah it's a couple hours and it's it's more than a doc it's more like a drama docudrama mm-hmm. you know it's because uh, well you know that's the nature of, of filmmaking you know you always want to show something that's never been seen before you know yeah and so so it's really it's it's a good it's it's good I <laughs> I try to meddle in in, in the <laughs> process you know. Because I'm a filmmaker, and, well, you know, sure. and it's about Cheech and Chong, and I thought, oh, great, I got a great ending for it. <laughs> and but uh, my daughter <laughs> and her guy Dave, Dave, who is an excellent filmmaker, you know, he, he was responsible for Sling Blade and and a few other really hip, beautiful movies. So, no, they had other ideas. <laughs> so, so, but I mean, I'm easy. You know, I, I can adjust to anything. You know? mm-hmm. That's why I, uh, when, when I was in prison, I really, really had a good time because it was all about, a, you know, growing up in Calgary the way I did, you know, my house was kind of used because my mother was so liberal and so beautiful uh, and my father, but my father was more like a, a truck driver dad, you know, he was home once in a while, mm-hmm. but uh, my mother was the one that really uh, set the stage, and she was such a beautiful. She was, which we never knew at the time, but she's like twenty some odd percent native herself. Her mother, my grandmother, was half, and they used to tell the family, you know, the lies that that my grandmother was Irish because she had mar- married a, a Dylan, and so her last name was Dylan, oh. and. Um, my other grandfather, on the other, my mother's side, uh, uh, was a Gilchrist. And so there was a Gilchrist and a Dylan, and uh, they got married. And but my my grandmother, the native uh, person, which I never found out till a few, uh, probably a couple of years ago. You know, we found out we did the DNA and found out that my grandmother was half native and born in Mafeking, Manitoba. So there's a lot of this really heavy spiritual native uh, energy going through through my, through my veins I know especially my, 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 everything I've done you yeah. know, I've, I've, uh, I've always acknowledged the fact that the power comes from above you know and, right. and from inside and uh, and that 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 was always the secret of my success. And uh, you know, and people just appeared when when we needed them, you know. Mm-hmm. And like Bobby Taylor was uh, Motown, you know. Bobby was this incredible singer. Now our our first singer, Tommy Melton, was incredible. You know, he w- he was supposed to be a football player, but he hurt his knee, and so he ended up being a rhythm and blues player. Singer. Yeah, I don't know. If people know. I mean, you, you had a remarkable music career. I mean, you mentioned oh. Barry Gordy, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Gordy Records, Motown Records. You guys were a big deal. Bobby Taylor and the Vancouver's. Yeah. Yeah. We changed Motown. Uh, first of all, we, while we were there, we discovered the Jackson Five. We were the ones that, that put them on the Motown label. <laughs> Crazy. You know, they, they opened for us in oh Chicago. My God. Yeah. And, and and we took them to uh, Detroit with us, and they stayed at Bobby's apartment for a, a, a good month before they got an audition at Motown, and then Motown signed them, and you know and the rest is history. I've been connected with people like that my whole life, and it's just so beautiful and so weird, but <laughs> and that's 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 just the way it's been going for me, you know. Yeah, you play you play guitar, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, you know, I'm, but I'm not a guitar player. You know, uh, I, it, it's when you grow up in the country, you do a, you learn a lot of uh, 
trades. You know, he learned to do everything. He lived on a farm. You learned to do everything. You know, there's no phoning the plumber or phoning the, you know, the electrician or, or you know, or the or, or the gardener. <laughs> you know, <laughs> when you're in the country, if something breaks down, you either fix it or you find someone that knows how to fix it. Yeah. And and no money passes changes hands by the in the country. You help each other. You know, hey, I need help with this. Okay, and then the 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 payment may may come in a case of beer or a, a meal or a, you know something like that. But yeah, I learned to play guitar because uh, there's a fiddle player across the field from us, and uh, and I learned enough guitar that he taught me how to back him up as a, a playing fiddle, and that was my earliest. Uh, uh, experience is being having to play mm-hmm. uh, rhythm guitar for a fiddle player, and that's how I learned my you know learn. Uh, that's how I learned to do uh, long sets, you know, because I, I I watch kids, you know, my kids, everybody's kids, you know, when they're learning music. Okay, you got to practice for at least twenty minutes or a <laughs> half hour. You know what I mean? Well, when I played, <laughs> when I played with for dances it was no half hour 20 minutes it was like all night <laughs> wow and uh you know and learning tunes and keeping the rhythm you know i i learned that discipline and and it was so important for my life because uh, everything i did after that you know you, you do it country style and uh and it just works out so well but you have you see the whole trick is helping others that that's the the secret of life and, and it's been taught in every holy book and every bible and every holy person they talk about love your neighbor help helping others and the reason you do that is because when you need help then they're there for you too and that's the way uh, we have to we have to do it and uh, <clears throat> you know like, like I said, in the country, <laughs> there, there, well, we never had a phone. There was no telephone in, in our house. The phone was at the corner store. <laughs> and, it, and I don't know why it called, we call it a corner store, but it was a store in the middle of uh, 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 West Calgary. You know, uh, like um, two miles past the, the bus loop where you catch the bus. So when you got off the bus, or the, the streetcar at the time, when you got up the streetcar, you had two miles to walk to get to home, and 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 in the country, two miles is nothing. You know, it's just normal. It gives you time to think, <laughs> or or to wade through the snow. It depends <laughs> on, on where you're at. No, I, I my my early life. No, and as a, as you get older, those memories that's those memories are so so vivid. Because it's like you, you, you're creating a circle, you know. Yeah, because you become very what, introspective, right? And yeah, thinking back yeah, on everything. Yeah, yeah, all of a sudden you're coming back to, to your early beginnings. Because, yeah, because I've had, you know, I've known, you know, some of the best guitarists in the world, you know. And, uh, oh, yeah, in fact, when I wrote the song for our Bobby Taylor, uh, you know, and I played guitar in the band, but when they went to record it, it was like, uh, uh, no, no, we got a real guitar player, Tom. <laughs> you, you can sit in the, you can sit in the control booth and listen to a real guitar player. Did, did you know Jeff Beck at all? Did you ever cross paths with Jeff Beck? Never did. Who? Yeah. He was with. Uh, who did oh, you play with mostly? Yeah, well, he had the Jeff Beck group in the '60s, and yeah, he, yeah. Uh, he played with a whole bunch of people over the years. So, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm just doing all the documentaries now. Yeah, because uh, you know, because I grew up, I, even though I met him, you know, their contemporaries like uh, uh, Grateful Dead. You know, I never guys, knew yeah. their music because I was busy doing my music and, and learning Motown. I, I learned Motown more than anything, and I, I just watched a Keith Richards uh, documentary, and uh, it's amazing, amazing. Oh, yeah. uh, even because I was never really into the Stones music until. Uh, uh, you know, until now, now I'm watching all the documentaries and I'm catching up with uh, 
with everybody. Uh, Jeff Beck, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, the Canadian uh, guitar player. Uh, the, Eric Clapton. Did you know Eric Clapton was half Canadian? No, I didn't really. No, I didn't know that. Isn't that amazing? His father was an Amer- a Canadian airman. Oh, no kidding. And, and uh, he got the mum pregnant, I guess, and uh, <laughs> and went back to Canada. I, I'm not sure. Huh? I haven't gotten... I should look that up. Hey, let me yeah, just ask but, you, too. I know but, before we, we run out of time because, um, you know, I think a lot of people were interested once they announced that 70s show was going to be rebooted, that 90s show. Is, oh, is yeah. Tommy Chong going to be a part of that? And I guess the good news is, yeah. right, the answer is yes. Yeah, yeah. They called me up. They wrote me my little uh, part, you know. <laughs> it's really cute. I love that show, by the way. Yeah, that must have been fun, eh? Oh, my God. At first, you know, I was a little... I got offered two shows. I got offered Nash Bridges, and I got offered the uh, that 70s show. But I'd already been to that 70s show when the Nash Bridges offer came in. Right. And I think the Nash Bridges offer was more like uh, being polite, you know, because Don Johnson took Cheech and <laughs> broke Cheech and Chong up, basically. And so I... Uh, so I had I chose of course I chose the, that seventy show because it was uh, written especially for me. <clears throat> and oh man, you talk about you know I never went to film school. I never went to I I, I never got out of I never really finished high school. I, I couldn't get past uh, algebra, and so you know I, my education was all on the street. <laughs> and uh, but when I went to that seventy show. I found, I, because my part was so small, I could sit and watch and go to school. I went to sitcom school because I'd sit and watch uh, Dave Trainer, the the director, work with kids, work with the with the, the cast and crew of the '70s show, and and it was it was a teaching moment. So I would sit there in the audience and just just take in how they how they direct it and how they work. The amazing thing about those shows is that every word is written by a writer. You know, every word. You know, when Cheech and I did our movies, we we wrote our oh, own yeah. as we went. You know, right. <laughs> uh, you know, we never used writers. Oh, well, actually, we used Cheech's cousin oh, in Up yeah. in Smoke, but that was it. But so so you know we're used to writing a, you know improv improv movie making yeah no kidding but, uh, well yeah January nineteenth is uh, I believe when it debuts uh, Tommy unfortunately we're out of time I'd love to, to oh, talk longer but okay. we'll we'll try to get you back again on sometime soon always great to catch up and uh, continued uh, good health and everything else and um, stay well Tommy great to hear from you okay where, where, where are you calling from by the way well we're here in Calgary and Ed- and Edmonton as well so. Oh, Calgary's still there, huh? <laughs> We're still here. Yeah, drop by sometime. Well, I thought it was going to be morphed into Okotoks. <laughs> yes, maybe eventually. Oh, man. Tommy, all the best. Take care. Take care, brother. There you go. Oh, what a legend. There you go, Tommy Chong. We are back with more right after this. guy you describe as like your favorite guitarist's favorite guitarist widely seen as one of the best ever jeff beck that died suddenly this week at the age of 78 as a result of bacterial meningitis uh, a career uh, legacy and influence that spans decades going all the way back to the 1960s but right up until today really, really changed the, the way the instrument was played uh, like i say was hugely influential uh, to those in the industry. And, you know, when you ask those, you know, more famous guitarists who they look up to, who influenced them, you know, many will say Jeff Beck. So a lot of tributes pouring in, uh, obviously, uh, in, in light of Jeff Beck's passing. And again, maybe not the biggest name as far as rock stars go. Not quite the household name that other famous guitarists, like Jimmy Page or uh, Eric Clapton or others were. Uh, but this guy mattered a lot. Uh, there's a great uh, write-up at a journal of musical things.com 
uh, on Jeff Beck's life and legacy. Joining us to talk more about it is author, broadcaster, historian, host of the ongoing history of new music, Alan Cross, uh, joining us uh, on the line here this afternoon. Alan, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you. So, yeah, I mean, what more can you say about Jeff Beck? When you talk about his legacy, his influence, uh, maybe there's there's none none higher, none better. Well, let's let's go back all the way to the 1960s. Uh, the first guitar hero that we really had, I'm stepping on a limb here, is probably George Harrison. But then we get to the 19, the mid-1960s, and a number of people begin to emerge. One is Jimmy Page. The other is Eric Clapton, and the third is Jeff Beck, all three of whom played in the Yardbirds at one time or another. And we will always remember Jimmy Page because he went on to be in Led Zeppelin. We will always remember Eric Clapton because he had so many solo hits. But then there's Jeff Beck, who might have been technically and artistically the best of those three. And the reason guitarists will say that is that you know, if you look at or you listen to what he does, there is a certain tonality, a certain dexterity that he displayed with the guitar that brought out sounds and feelings and textures that nobody else could really do. Uh, you can give a guitar to anybody, and each person will play the guitar differently. That's nothing to do with the guitar. It has to do with how you play it, how you, uh, how you finger it, how you strum it, how you pick at it how you set it up. Mm-hmm. And and Jeff Beck was a guy that everybody looked to because what he did uh, with the guitar was, was quite extraordinary. There was a concert in 1983, the Arms Concert. And this was a, a benefit to raise money for multiple sclerosis research. And for the first time, all three of these guys, Beck, Clapton, and Page, were on stage at the same time. And people who watch that, you can go to my website and see the video of that. People will tell you that, that Beck blew these guys off the stage. And uh, also Page and, and, uh, and Clapton knew that they were being upstaged and couldn't do anything about it. Yeah, it's crazy. And you look, I mean, he had the, the Jeff Beck group in, in the 60s, and you look at some of the names that, that you know, featured in the Jeff Beck group, Rod Stewart, Ronnie Wood, uh, Keith Moon, like, it's it's incredible. Yeah, and he was a guy that, that, he wasn't a singer, he wasn't a frontman, he was a guitarist and a band leader. So if you needed somebody to sing, well, you'd call up Rod Stewart or, or somebody else. Yeah. He did have some hits, uh, not big hits, certainly not in the same way as Zeppelin or Eric Clapton, but he had some hits. Um, that displayed his guitar prowess. Uh, I discovered Jeff Beck through a 1975 album called Blow by Blow, and there was one FM hit on that, FM rock radio hit called Freeway Jam. It was a uh, an instrumental, and if you listen to it now, it was pretty progressive for for rock at the time, and uh, it had tinges of, of progressive jazz in it as well. Uh, I remember hearing it and thinking, "Wow, that's really tasty." When it comes to you know the licks that Jeff point, he would also do, uh, work with people like Elton and Mick Jagger and David Bowie and Tina Turner and Steve Wonder and Bon Jovi and a, and, a, and a bunch of others because people wanted to work with Beck because he had this this style and this. And, and not just in the 60s and 70s, uh, right? I mean, people wanted to work with him. I mean, he was, was prolific right through, uh, you know, the 80s, the 90s, into the 2000s. I mean, most recently in, in 2022, he, he still released, you know, new material. Yeah, he was with uh, Johnny Depp. Yeah. And and uh, everybody was saying, you know, the, the attention was on, on, on Johnny Depp because he just come out of the Amber Heard trial. But uh, then he realized, well... Johnny Depp and, and, and Beck had been uh, friends for a while. And you know that being on the same stage on the same record as uh, Jeff Beck really lends an awful lot of credit to Johnny Depp. Oh, sure. And uh, they released an album. They, they were touring you know, right up until before Christmas. And then he got sick and, and died, which was it's just a, a terrible loss. But, you know, we've talked before. And we are heading towards this mass extinction event where these heroes, these musical heroes that we've known for 30, 40, 50, 60 years are approaching the end of their lives. And over the next five to 10 years, maybe a little bit, well, actually from here on in, we're going to see more and more of these unfortunate and very sad deaths, which are going to bring us face to face with our mortality 
in a, in a very uncomfortable way, but there's no getting around it. Well, yeah, as, as sad as it is, I mean, it's an opportunity to, you know, to, to share those memories and reflect on just how special they were. And I think that's what we're seeing, right, to see all these huge names in the music industry talk about how much he meant to them. Right. And, and maybe for people who aren't all that familiar with Jeff Beck, but know all these other stars, like I said at the beginning, kind of like, you know, the way like your favorite rock stars, favorite rock star, your favorite guitarists, favorite guitarist. Like that's kind of who he was. Here's what I'm hoping is happening with, with Jeff Beck. People, a lot of young people are going, Jeff who? Uh, never heard of him. Why are so many people talking about him? I better go check him out. I'm on Spotify yeah. or Apple Music or whatever. And maybe they will. And they'll go, oh, my God, this, this guy was, was a musical genius. Um, you know what? This is going to inspire me to pick up an electric guitar and learn to play myself. I'm, I'm hoping that that's, that's going to be a, an offshoot of this. Now, he was inducted, he, I remember the Yardbirds were inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame like years ago, but he was inducted separately, wasn't he? Yeah, as a solo artist. Yeah. Uh, very few people have that honor of being inducted twice, and, and Jeff Beck was, uh, once as a member of the, the Yardbirds, and then uh, for all the things that he did on his own. Yeah, I think there was kind of a famous moment back when the Yardbirds were inducted, and he got on stage, didn't he, and said, yeah, they kicked me out, uh, F them or, or something. To, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that that you know when you have that many those that many egos in the yeah, same okay. band, and and each one of them thinks um, that no 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 uh, you know we're gonna be a rock band no no we're gonna be a blues band no 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 we're gonna do this uh, yeah there was there was just no way that that could survive. Okay, but yeah, I mean I think it was Jimmy Page wasn't it who inducted him uh, I guess in in two thousand nine. Yeah. All all is forgiven. All yeah. is forgiven. Yeah, quite a, a remarkable career. As mentioned, much more up at journalofmusicalthings.com. Alan, always appreciate it. Thanks for making some time for us here. You bet. We'll see you later. All the best. Uh, that's a music writer, uh, historian, broadcaster, Alan Cross, host of the uh, Ongoing History of New Music. And, yeah, I mean, it's a bummer to have to bring Alan on to talk about all these uh, legends who have died. But it is an opportunity to, to, you know, honor them and pay tribute and just talk about what made them so special. And And as Alan said, you know, I mean, if... As a result of that, you hear on the news, you hear a conversation about someone you weren't as familiar with, an opportunity to go back and say, okay, well, what was it then that, that made them so beloved or so special? And just kind of discover, rediscover what it was they did. So not many careers like this. To, to have been relevant for that long and still almost to some extent kind of fly under the radar. Yeah, it was, it was quite a remarkable career. And to still have that output. Like, to be that influential as far back as the 1960s. And then, you know, in the 90s and the 2000s, you're still putting up music. In, in, you know, 2010 and 2016 and 2022, people are still seeking you out. You know, they want to work with you. And that's kind of what he was. So, yeah, a, a, a sad occasion to have to, to share that story and talk about uh, this, this individual. But, you know, certainly... Uh, all kinds of reasons to, to pay tribute to, to Jeff Beck and uh, what he achieved in, in his remarkable career. Uh, so as mentioned, dead this week at the age of 78. Uh, bacterial meningitis, apparently. Uh, so, you know, I mean, he's, he was obviously getting up there in age, but this still did just seem to come out of nowhere. As Alan mentioned, I mean, he had just been working with uh, Johnny Depp. Uh, you know, they've been working on this project just, just recently. And then just like that, he's gone. <laughs> Hey, friends, happy Friday. Welcome aboard. This is Afternoons on QR Calgary. Thanks for being with us here today as we wind down what's been a really exciting week for us, launching this new era of Talk on FM. And thanks for being with us on 107 FM, of course, also with us on 770 AM. we got a lot to get to here this afternoon. You can reach us, 403-974-8255. Let's talk gas stoves or alternatives. you basically got three choices if you're looking to buy a stove. You've got electric. You've got gas. Now you've got induction, which is kind of a, a newer option, and maybe that's where things are going eventually. Now, different stoves offer different pros and cons. How certain concerns should you be, though, about gas stoves? The burning of natural gas to cook whatever it is you're cooking on your stove. Are there any issues with the environment? Are there any issues with indoor air quality? Now, it feels like kind of out of nowhere, we're suddenly debating gas stoves, and, and there's a reason why this has been thrust into the spotlight, but this issue isn't new, and these concerns aren't new either. So we're going to talk more about that off the top of this afternoon. Let's start with kind of an overview of all of this. This is Global's Erica Vela. 
there is a lot of research that shows natural gas stoves can release airborne pollutants, but it doesn't appear that they will be banned from homes in the U.S. or Canada. It starts with a click and then... It's how millions of Canadians begin their cooking routine each day. But gas stoves are igniting controversy after hints of a possible ban sparked in the U.S. When you combust natural gas, uh, you produce a lot of things. You produce ultrafine or very small particles that can penetrate very deep into our respiratory system. Studies have shown that stoves that burn natural gas can emit pollutants inside a home, like nitrogen dioxide and fine particulate matter. A study from the Institute for Policy Integrity says the pollutant concentrations can exceed levels that the U.S. EPA and the WHO have deemed unsafe and linked to respiratory illness, cardiovascular problems, cancer, and other serious health conditions. One peer-reviewed study released last month found almost 13% of current childhood asthma in the U.S. was attributable to gas stove use. Asthma is such a multifactorial condition with so many factors associated with it, such as genetics and exposure to air quality outside and other conditions. It's hard to determine that 13% are caused just because of gas at home. We are producing products that are as safe as they are useful for, uh, for the consumer. And we continue to evolve and create new technologies. A ban in the U.S. isn't imminent. A statement from the chair of the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission says it's looking for ways to reduce related indoor air quality hazards. But to be clear, it's not looking to ban gas stoves and the CPSC has no proceeding to do so. Experts say airborne emissions can happen with all energy sources, including electric. But there are ways to lessen any potential pollutants. Properly vent the cooking area. And so a good range hood fan that actually vents air to the outside is really important. Now, we have reached out to Health Canada. In a statement, a spokesperson says Health Canada has conducted studies to assess the level of pollutants from the use of gas cooktop stoves. And there are guidelines around safe levels of indoor air pollutants in residential settings. They also regularly monitor the marketplace and test products to ensure that they're safe. So that from Global's Erica Vela. So that's where things are at. So this uh, consumer agency in the U.S. had talked about a possible ban, but now says that's not in the cards. The White House also making it clear this week uh, there are no plans to ban gas stoves. As you heard Erica say, there's there's nothing from the federal government or from Health Canada uh, that suggests that they're looking at anything of the sort. And ultimately now I guess it falls to consumers to sort of make that decision. What do you think is best for you? What do you think is best for the environment? You've got some choices to make. There are advantages to, to cooking with natural gas. We have a natural gas stove at home. And we also have the hood fan. We have the air purifier. You know, you, you, there are ways, obviously, of minimizing any of those kinds of impacts. So like I say, I think it falls right now to the consumer. A lot of people had sent me links uh, to the piece from our next guest, which actually from a couple of years ago, which implies that, yeah, this d- debate's been going on for a while. Uh, I was up at the New York Times website, their wire cutter page, uh, with the headline, Don't Ditch Your Gas Stove Just Yet. Uh, Liam McCabe is the author of that piece, formerly with the New York Times, also formerly with Consumer Reports. Uh, he's now a senior writer with Energy Sage, energysage.com. Liam McCabe, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. You know, and I said it feels like this debate kind of came out of nowhere, but but this has been an issue for a while. I mean, your piece, I, I think it was from 2021, you wrote about this for the New York Times. That piece is getting a lot of renewed attention, but I guess this debate's kind of been around a while, hasn't it? Yeah, when I first wrote it, I had noticed uh, like a spate of articles coming out every three or four months, repeating a similar argument that, you know, gas stoves are have some risks. Uh, you know, the the climate uh, implications are worth considering and there's some concerns about health. Um, But yeah, dating back to say 2018 or 2019, I think is when I noticed it first. So what are the issues? I mean, there are kind of separate issues, I guess. So one of them is uh, the climate change issue. And that, that one's a little more obvious. We're using natural gas for cooking. That's that's burning a fossil fuel. So there's that. But I guess there's also the indoor air quality issue. That's a little more complicated, isn't it? Yeah, that one's more complicated, and I have to preface it by saying, like, I'm not a health expert at all. But um, right. I, yeah, I took a look at, you know, I, I saw a lot of the studies that were out there, 
Um, there is concern that the emissions from burning gas inside, you know, not only are you combusting food, which is known to create ultrafine particles, which I think pose some uh, lung health and dementia risks. There's also concern about carbon monoxide and uh, nitrous oxide, I think, is the other one. Um, and some links to childhood asthma and other health conditions. Yeah, and even some of these studies that have pointed to a link, and I think they're cautious to say that, you know, there's some correlation here, that there's a lot we still don't understand. I mean, obviously, you know, ventilation, uh, you know, a lot of other stuff comes into play here. So it's it's not quite as, as cut and dry, maybe, as, as it seems on the surface, is it? Yeah, well, I, you know, when I was making my own decision about what to do with this information, I saw what was out there and i decided i was comfortable going with the ventilation route um mm-hmm. i did end up eventually getting rid of my gas stove and in- installing induction uh but the health concerns weren't the main driver of that for me um yeah the research i saw including from some you know notable professors suggested that opening a window and running an air purifier at a minimum should offset most of the the um the risks associated with cooking indoors. Right. Um, pre- preferably, you would want an actual range hood that uh, ventilates an appropriate amount of air. Um, and I think part of the concern is that a lot of people don't have those. They're either not installed well, or they're not sized correctly, or they don't even actually ventilate. They just recirculate the air throughout your kitchen, and that that does nothing. <laughs> it's like all that does is make your forehead a little greasy. Right. Um, so, you know, there, there's a lot to unpack. Yeah, there is. And I guess for now, I mean, it, it is going to fall to consumers to decide what's best for them and their own situation. I mean, you know, so basically we have the three choices now. It used to be just kind of electric versus gas. Inductions become really big now. So there's sort of those three choices. I guess the people are sort of coming down to, like, what's the best stove? What's best for cooking? What's, you know, those kinds of, of questions. I mean, I don't know. Is, does, do, is there a clear choice here or where do you come down? I mean, personally, I I switched to induction about a year ago. I think it's great. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I am I am not uh, a talented cook uh, at all. But you know, for day to day, you know, making breakfast, making dinner for my family, it is awesome. It, it heats up much faster than even gas does. Um, I find that not having the excess heat from the open flame in my kitchen during the summer is really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's pretty easy to clean. The the surface never gets that hot. So even when food bubbles over and gets on the surface, it never scorches. So it's relatively easy to clean it off with just like a damp rag at the end of the night. And that's a nice benefit. Um, and I found that it's a little better at holding low temperatures as well. Uh, and and this, the oven is identical to any electric oven that, mm-hmm. that a lot of people are familiar with. Um, yeah. So is, is that kind of it for now? I mean, obviously the politicians have sort of got their, their teeth into it and cable news, and it's kind of become this, this whole big thing. But uh, the Consumer Product Safety Commission for now says, you know, they're, they're not considering a ban, or at least it's not on the table. Do you feel like this kind of gets shelved for now? Or where, where does this go from here, do you suspect? Oh, I don't know. It's, that's an interesting question. I mean, when I wrote that article two years ago, I did not anticipate I would be getting asked about it two years later. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I think my take is that there are a lot of people who really like their gas stoves, whether oh, yeah. that's because they're just unfamiliar with induction or they genuinely do prefer it, I think is up for debate. Um, there are some practical concerns about, you know, electrifying your kitchen. You know, there's, you know, they, they aren't a major source of carbon emissions. So maybe the focus isn't shouldn't necessarily be on decarbonizing your stove. You might want to pay attention to uh, your via, your transportation yeah, exactly. or your heating system first. Um, you know, to some people, power outages can be an obstacle. It's nice to have uh, a fossil fuel backup if you're in an area where the power goes down frequently. And just the the, the logistics of converting your kitchen are kind of a hassle. It can be very expensive. I yeah, I laid out some numbers in an article I wrote for Consumer Reports, and it's I was happy to do it. You know, it's something I wanted to do, and I had the means to do it. But just the basic costs, I think, are out of reach for a lot of people. Yeah. There are some rebates that we have in the U.S. I don't know what the situation in Canada is. That can help, but there's another 
challenge that's you know becoming more obvious is that it's it could be tough to even find an electrician at this point because they're so busy with so many projects and right. there hasn't been a ton of recruitment and a lot of the a lot of the workforce is aging out from what i understand so it's it's just it's it's a lot to deal with all at once yeah, no kidding. Some interesting issues for sure. Much more, as mentioned, energysage.com. Liam, thanks again for this. Really appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Yeah, thanks, Rob. There you go. That's uh, Liam McCabe, senior writer at energysage.com, previously with the New York Times and Consumer Reports. So an issue he's covered before, and it's uh, now back at the forefront uh, with some musing about a possible ban in the U.S. Uh, that's now been, I guess, for for the time being, shelved or cast aside. So uh, there is no proposed ban at this uh, moment in the U.S., nor is there a proposed ban in uh, Canada. Now, there are those who do think that should be the case. And I guess there would be different ways of doing that. You could sort of phase it out over the long run, saying, you know, when we get to a certain point, no more new natural gas stoves to be sold or mandated for new homes, right? You know, the idea of having to to force people to remove them from their kitchens, that doesn't seem very practical or, or fair for that matter. Well, this is now the fighter jet that Stephen Harper wants to buy no matter what, no matter what it costs. That F-35 might be Stephen Harper's dream, but I can tell you, for Canadian taxpayers, it'll be a nightmare. Yeah, that was from 2015, uh, the election in which the Liberals uh, vowed they would not purchase F-35 fighter jets. Now, look, when it comes to fighter jets or tanks or guns, whatever we, we think the Canadian forces need or don't need, you need to look at the merits. When it comes to fighter jets... There was a need in 2015. There was a need probably 10 years before 2015 uh, to upgrade, to replace our, our aging fleet. Shouldn't be about politics. Shouldn't be about Stephen Harper this, Justin Trudeau that. It, it's about the merits of you know, the potential options. Is the F-35 the right jet for you know the, the Royal Canadian Air Force? Yes or no? And if the answer is no, what is? Anyway, so yes, we need a new fighter jets. And yes, we need a, a, a process in place now and moving forward for how and when we go about replacing fighter jets or replacing anything else. Because this has been a real mess. We've needed new fighter jets for a very long time. And going from 2010, when the Harper government first announced an intention to move forward with the purchase of F-35 fighter jets to now in 2023 when the Liberal government has decided, yes, we are going to purchase F-35 fighter jets. We have wasted 13 years and added billions of dollars to the cost. The silver lining, if you want to find one, is that we are finally going to get fighter jets and probably the specific fighter jet that Canada needs. But man, this, this turned into a real mess. Just our, our usual and typical problems with procurement and then this, this dose of politics that got injected into it all. Definitely not been helpful. Well, joining us to talk more about how we got into this uh, whole situation in the first place, uh, what we make of the decision to purchase F-35 fighter jets for the Royal Canadian Air Force. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Richard Shamuka, a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, a, a special uh, focus on defense management, foreign policy, procurement, strategic studies. Uh, Richard, great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. This did seem to be a lot more politicized than other procurement decisions. Why do you think that is? A couple of reasons. I think there's always skepticism for some of the big t- ticket purchases, uh, specifically fighter jets, given that it was you know, a capability that a lot of people think or was made to appear as being somehow not really aligned with what Canada needed. Uh, if you look went back all the way back to 2011 and that election. Uh, at that time, the Liberal Party NDP kind of derided it as the stealth bomber that, you know, really, we're just going to be bombing other countries, which really wasn't really that accurate mm-hmm. uh, in, in how they kind of portrayed it. And, and so they immediately got politicized, right? And then going into 2015 is your quote or your uh, little uh, kind of cut through on, on Justin Trudeau's um, comments yeah. showed like, I mean, it, it just, it was politicized right there. And then, and, and then that kind of continued for the next couple of years as they went through a whole process to try to make a decision, which arrived right back at the decision that was made in 2010. 
Well, that's what's frustrating. I guess maybe reasonable people can disagree on, on what's the best fit for the Canadian forces. I mean, obviously, you're of the opinion that, that we're finally landing back on, on the right jet. If the Liberals had come in in 2015 and said, you know, we've decided to go with, with Boeing, for example. Okay, and people can disagree on that, but at least, you know, there would have been some consistency there. So this this very long circle that we've taken, this long trip to circle back right to where we started, that that's I, I, frustrating, I suppose, is the way to put it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think it's actually probably the people that are most frustrated is probably the Air Force. Uh, and especially the pilots and the maintainers that are sort of tasked with keeping our, you know, our, our security safe uh, with, with fighter jets. And a lot of them, especially in the 2015 kind of time frame, had started to see the F-35, uh, their exercises and seeing our allies uh, acquire them and operate them. And they realized that they were flying something that when the CF-18s that was basically uh, was obsolete and they didn't see the they didn't see any sort of prospect of them getting anything that was remotely close to what would be necessary for them to do their job Mm -hmm. in the future years and that and constant sort of quality of life issues uh, you know working the forces just uh, forced a lot of them just to leave the forces so you know that to me in many ways is the best indicator of you know what was necessary and, and what how how to best defend Canada or what Canada needs and the people who saw that said well this isn't going to work and they sort of left. Yeah, you know it's I mean it's it's unfortunate given where we ended up here that we we've ended up purchasing the the planes the Liberals vowed not to purchase in the first place. But was there a point about the process? You know the the criticism of the Harper government that it, we didn't really hold an open competition. The Liberals said we need a, an open competition. Was there anything to that? I think there's ways to cut at that and say, well, you know, you had to get the Canadian public and, and the understanding to a place where they would accept this aircraft. I'm a little less, I'm a little more skeptical of that view. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if you look at just the analysis that was done in 2010 and why they went to a sole source selection at the time, it was pretty clear that, you know, the aircraft was far more, uh, far more capable than anything out there. Uh, it was a far better fit for Canada, and it provided better industrial benefits and was a lot less costly than any other option. That didn't change. The, the, basically, those analyses underpinned the 20, you know, our current uh, competition. And if you look abroad, like in Germany or uh, Finland, they said the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, so there's some people say, well, you know, we need a competition to prove that. Well, is that really the case? Is that Was that really necessary when the answer was still there it was the same answer that came along is does that require maybe political leadership say no this is a better option and we should we should stick to it instead as i alluded to earlier is that a lot of the people got so fed up with watching this kind of ongoing saga and some of its really ugly twists and turns that they just left and now we're facing basically a another sort of decade of darkness to use a uh to use a regular sort of comment yeah. is that the air force has almost no personnel uh, is, is sort of unable to do anything but just protect Canada and that's it. They're not able to help our allies abroad and that's noticeable to our allies and, and our close partners because you know they see Canada's just withdrawing because partly because of the nature of how this decision unfolded over the last 13 years. There's another political cloud that hangs over this and and, and again, I, I think the F-35 is, is the right jet ultimately, but, you know, Boeing got excluded for what were kind of political reasons, too. And, you know, that, that sort of haunts this, this government's decision. What about that side of it? So there's two parts of that. What happened was there was an interim buy. And I, it, it seems right now that the, the government, when it came in in 2015, tried to do a bit of an end run to acquire a certain amount of they, – they, they had officially announced they were going to buy – 18 uh, super hornets to fill what they called a capability gap mm-hmm. which is this kind of made-up scenario that they couldn't deploy forces both to protect norad and nato at the same time the reality is that we are so far beyond that that issue we're, we're barely able to defend norad on its own right now and the capability gap doesn't seem to be a big you know concern for them now so they created this capability gap they said they were going to sole source 18 super hornets and then that was that. Uh, the thing is that there was this, there was that whole purchase was canceled, partly because the C series. The other thing is that it was a lot more costly than they had thought it would be, and then they had a full competition after that, right? right. But that was all part of this kind of saga, where you know it was all sort of the politics of it. it. wasn't actually what was required for the Canadian forces. It wasn't that 
didn't really come into play. They, they had sort of made a bad promise. He had made bad promises, you know, played it before, and we're trying to find a way out of it, and it kind of backfired for, uh, on them. So the question of whether we've landed on the right fighter jet, why this meets the needs of the Canadian forces, why, why do you believe the F-35 was, was the way to go all along? Well, it's important to note at the very start, Canada's one of the original partners for designing and building the, the aircraft. Some of the sort of northern operational requirements were kind of pushed for Canada, which is very cold weather operations, like negative 40, whatnot. So Canada has been a part of the F-35 program since as early as uh, 1997. When you look on just a broader level, almost every, every single competition that F-35 has been in among our allies, it's basically won. Like, it, almost all of our allies utilize the exact same fighter. It reduces the logistical costs. Uh, the production scale is, is basically you can put all the Western fighters beside it, like all the production for them. It still doesn't amount to how many F-35s are built. And that sort of scale of production makes it cheaper for us to operate, purchase the aircraft. But it also ensures that we're interoperable. So we work seamlessly with our allies, you know, against in places, you know, in Eastern Europe or let's say in Asia Pacific, we're able to work seamlessly with them. And if you look at how modern warfare is evolving, which is about data flows, like identifying targets and and, and sort of prosecuting them very quickly and rapidly, this is basically the aircraft that does that. It's really a flying supercomputer, and that's just the reality of how warfare is going. So what's a realistic timeline for actually acquiring these, and, and what are we going to need to do in the meantime to keep this uh, aging fleet, a fleet that's now aged 13 years in this whole process, to, to keep that operating? So there's two parts. Uh, the Royal Canadian Air Force has put a contract. Uh, they're basically going to upgrade about half of the remaining CF-18s to a, a much more modern standard with new radars. That's going to kind of keep Canada able to defend uh, continental North America until about 20, somewhere in the early 2030s. The big issue for the Royal Canadian Air Force is not so much getting the aircraft themselves, it's the pilots. Mm -hmm. There's just not enough pilots. There's far too few, and a lot of their sort of knowledge and capabilities of kind of knowledge and skills have kind of eroded because those people have left. And they're going to have to retrain a whole generation of fighter pilots because there's nobody really available to train on this new aircraft and fill out the 88 aircraft that they currently have. And that's going to be the bigger question. It's not getting the aircraft. It's really who's going to sit in the pilot seat to fly them. And while the Air, Royal Canadian Air Force says they're going to, they should be done this transition to 2032, there's real questions whether or not they will be able to achieve that because they themselves can't actually, you know, operate the aircraft with the, with the people they have currently. Okay, so 2032, nine years from now, that, that's the optimistic timeline. That, I think that's not even a realistic one at this stage, oh, wow. given, given just how, per, how bad the personnel situation is. Very interesting. Much more at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Richard, appreciate the insight on all of this. Thanks for making some time for us here. Thanks for having me. All the best. Uh, that's uh, Richard Shamuka, Senior Fellow with the McDonald laurier Institute, uh, somebody who focuses, uh, among other things, on, on procurement issues. And so, yeah, we're not good at procurement at the best of times, but holy cow, when you inject this much politics into it, it just makes it that much worse. And so, sure, this is, this is a, an indictment of the liberal government. You know, certainly, look, the Harper government's not above criticism and how they dealt with all of this, but uh, this is just, this is beyond frustrating. That it was a politically motivated decision to say we're not going to buy the F-35 fighter jets and then to waste all of this additional time well, I mean, the 2015 election was five years already, five years already after the government signaled its intent uh, to, to go with this plane. 2015 was now eight years ago. So, yeah, that, that's a lot of wasted time. And for what? To end up right back where we started? So that's on them. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.